Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And you know, we uh, we all have a lot of ideas about what shame is. Certain uh, images come to mind from our own life, from the world of fiction. But, uh, but we're here to tell you that shame uh, is Spider-Man. Shame is Spider-Man. <laughs> and let's explain that. Let's unpack that. Because there, uh, there was an experiment. Yes. All right. Yeah, indeed. A 2013 study uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that took more than 700 participants from uh, Finland, Sweden, and Taiwan, and they had them view emotion-laden words, videos, facial expressions, and stories, and then the participants self-reported areas of their bodies that felt different following the exposure. So then they take they took this information and they used it to create uh, computer generated silhouettes with the areas colored to note areas of increased bodily sensation like reds, yellows, and oranges, and decreased uh, cold blues. Okay, so the aim here was to map bodily sensations in connection with specific emotions, and it, it ends up looking like an infrared image. By yes, the way, it does. It looks like straight up infrared uh, predator imagery of uh, of a human body. But uh, but it's not created. That was created through self-reporting. And really, they're quite uh, interesting uh, looking. Uh, do check it out. I'll include a link to the study on the landing page for this episode. Yeah, you should check it out because all of those emotions are represented on the body. And the only emotion that is a full-bodied emotion mm-hmm. that's self-reported is happiness, which I, I think is not too surprising, right? Um, but the one that we are focusing on today, shame, well, it's represented... In a way that the the person, the silhouette, kind of looks like Spider Man. Indeed, yeah. Whereas happiness is like bright yellow face, yellow chest, and then red over the rest of the body. Uh, shame is uh, mostly dark body, but also some red on the chest, red face, and then these big uh, sort of almond shaped. Uh, yellow blotches right where our cheeks would be, but they really do look like the large, low, almond-shaped eyes of everyone's uh, favorite comic book web-slinger. Now, this was observed by a commenter on the the actual article, which we thought was pretty clever. So we thought, yeah, shame, shame does look like Spider-Man in the body when it's <laughs> expressed. And anxiety, by the way, to me, looks like Darth Maul. Let's see. Let's see which one's anxiety. Let me look. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting a definite... Dark mall kind of quality off of that. Yeah, kind of like streaks on the cheeks there. Yeah. Sadness looks a little bit like um, like that painting, uh, the, the, the Scream, you know? With, that, yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that too. So, and I thought, yeah, that is sadness. Although the Scream, I think it's supposed to be some sort of existential terror. Yeah. Uh, it, that's also sad too, Sadness right? also kind of looks, um, you know, unsurprisingly like uh, the ghost character on Yo Gabba Gabba. <laughs> Goomba or something uh, like that. Google? Google. Yeah, it looks kind of like Google. Can't believe we know that. All right. So obviously we're talking about shame today. Uh, you know, that, that particular feeling that is evoked when, say, your grandmother says something like, shame on you, Julie Douglas, shame on you. <laughs> right? Um, there, there's a whole boatload of, of stuff associated with shame. But first we should probably define it. Yeah, and in this we get into the basic uh, meat of shame and guilt. They're often thought of sort of uh, as the same thing, but they're different. They're they're, they're quite different. And this is really important. Like a lot hinges on this. Yes. So what's guilt, right? When do you feel guilt? You you feel guilt 
when you uh, you have remorse for something you did, a specific crime, a specific action. There's this thing that you did, and you're like, ah, oh, I did that. That that sucks. I'm sorry that I did it. But then you have shame. And shame is a little different. Shame is, if it's attached to an, an action, then it's more like, I can't believe I'm the type of person who would do that. It's the, the, the painful feeling that arises from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, improbable. It's, it's, it's almost more tied to, there's something wrong with me. There's a fault in me, not a fault in mere, merely in my actions. Yeah, sociologist Brene Brown says, in the simplest terms, shame is about who we are, not what we've done. Mm. It's often lasting, devastating, and makes us feel abnormal and alone. And she gives uh, some examples of her own research into this when she's looking at the difference between guilt and shame. She says, guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Or I made a flawed decision. Or I am flawed. Mm -hmm. So you see the pattern there. Yeah, there are fundamental differences here that we'll uh, we'll definitely um, pull apart in this episode. Right. And we're going to talk about how powerful this emotion is, shame. I mean, how it can actually dictate the path of your life mm-hmm. and uh, how you operate out in the world. Uh, but first, we have to look at one of shame's calling cards, also guilt and embarrassment's calling cards, mm-hmm. blushing. Indeed. And we'll look at Papa Darwin here, who in the expression of emotions in Man and Animals, which he wrote in 1872, looked at the movements of expression in the face and the body and was particularly interested in blushing he said it is the most peculiar and the most human of all expressions. Now, Darwin suspected that blushing had to do with how we appear to others. He wrote, mental states which induce blushing consist of shyness, shame and modesty, the essential element in all being self-attention. It is not the simple act of reflecting on our own appearance, but the thinking of what others think of us, which excites a blush. And he was on to something there. Um, He also felt like the blushing was directly related to the part of the body that the person was thinking of or thought was being observed. In part, he thought this because uh, he was looking at a physician's account of a woman who, when she disrobed in her chest area, began to blush in her chest area. Now, he was taking his cues mostly from physicians' accounts because he wasn't going around making people blush and then (laughs) gathering a bunch of data. Uh, So that's where he was collecting some of his thoughts from. And he also thought that blushing could have been genetic, like this idea that the the more your ancestors blush, the more robust it would show up or be Mm -hmm. selected for in yourself. Um, Is this the full picture? No. Um, And in fact, Darwin didn't distinguish between embarrassment and guilt and shame Um, to try to get to the reasons for blushing. He just kind of lumped them all in in one big pool. Um, In 1871, he wrote to his friend H. Wedgwood. He said, I wish I had said more about shame, an awfully complex subject, where no two persons would ever quite agree, and I hardly expect anyone will agree with me. But as yet, I nail my colors to the mast. (laughs) In other words, here's what I've figured out so far about shame and blushing, and I don't think it's the full picture. You know, and indeed, the full picture is still kind of lacking today, even though there's been a lot more study uh, since that time. Um, you know, with blushing, we're, we're again, we're talking about the involuntary reddening of a person's face due to emo- emotional stress. That might be anxiety, it could be romance, anger, embarrassment, and, of course, shame. 
Now, the questions arise, though, of course. Um, you know, exactly, you know, how is it coming about physiologically? What are there different types of blushes? Uh, you know, we observe things like the mere awareness of a blush can cause it to increase. Being told that you're blushing when you're not can cause the blush to manifest. Um, and, and and certainly mileage varies from person to person. We can, we can all think of people who blush more easily than others. Um, but scientists have asked, is, is a blush a single phenomenon or are there different kinds of blushing? Like, how do you uh, make sense of the fact that you have like that sudden blush? Like, like, oops, did something embarrassing. Oops, I'm really ashamed. Just total red face versus the creeping blush that might uh, manifest, uh, you know, slowly during the course of a, a presentation or a speech or an increasingly intense uh, conversation. As uh, psychologist Ray uh, Kreuzer points out, it's an it's an understudied area. It's an understudied area of human expression. And part of this is because the blush is difficult to measure, even with our modern tools, uh, even with you know thermal sensors and cameras. Uh, the fleeting blush, especially like the micro expression of blushes, is very difficult to study. And the the physiology of the blush itself is really a complex tapestry that involves the sympathetic nervous system and its regulation. It involves uh, uh, Brandy Kinnon, uh, a compound released in the blood in some circumstances that uh, causes contraction of smooth muscles and the dilation of blood vessels, uh, histamine, nitric oxide, and a number of other combined factors. Uh, and plus, you can throw into the, into, and you can also throw into the, the mix that there are plenty of other things that can make your face flush. Not only emotions, but, you know, hot flashes, exercises, sexual arousal, um, you name it. Well, there's also the kind of blush that can arise when you do have attention directed toward you, but it's mm-hmm. pleasurable, right? Like right. Maybe it's a, a some sort of positive experience and you're blushing, but it then can become negative because you're called out for it. Right. So there's a changeability to blushing. Um, and there are, there are a ton of different kinds, uh, as you say, that we haven't really gotten to the bottom of and a bunch of different sources for blushing. But I think most people can relate to a blushing related to unwanted attention at one time or another in your life, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to get to um, the depths of the self-conscious blush, there was a study conducted by Peter D. Drummond and Nadia Mirko. This was published in the March 2004 edition of Psychotherapy with the paper uh, titled, Staring at One Side of the Face Increases Blood Flow on That Side of the Face, (laughs) okay? So let's figure out what they did here, because I think that gives you a clue to at least one of their methods. Uh, The setup is this. They had 28 participants who were asked to either sing out loud or read out loud. Robert, what would your preference be? It it comes down to who's who's watching. You know, I'm going to be more comfortable reading, but... But singing is a different, uh, a different situation entirely. It's a different experience, a different communication, a different expression of yourself. Uh huh. Right. Reading is more, is, it's a normative thing, right? Like yeah. you're talking right now, you can read at the same pace. There's not a lot of difference there. But singing out of context, like when you're not on a stage, mm-hmm. really kind of, uh, draws a lot of attention, right? It says, Hey, look at me. I'm doing something <laughs> totally weird out of context. Um, So that's why they chose this. And this is what they found. Increases in cheek temperature were greater on the observed than the unobserved side during both tasks. Okay, Changes in cheek temperature were symmetrical when the experimenter sat next to another 23 participants and looked straight ahead 
as well when the experimenter stared at one side of the participant's face through a glass window while the participants would sing. However, increases in cutaneous blood flow were greater on the observed and the unobserved side of the forehead during singing. Hmm. Okay, there's more blushing going on on one side of the face. (laughs) Um, So I think that gives you a bit of a clue as to that unwanted attention and how it would act on the body. Okay. And, of course, uh, as we were discussing uh, before we came in to record, I imagine this this may differ depending on how musical one's uh, family upbringing is or how how prone one is to break into song in their daily life. Right. If you were really off-key, perhaps mm-hmm. you would have a scarlet blush, which might even be sort of saying, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and, indeed, that's a whole other argument, that uh, that blushing is a signal to your fellow your fellow primates to uh, to communicate something. Uh now, when it comes to primates, it's, it's worth noting, and I think I've mentioned this uh, in the past, when you, when you look at social and non-social primates, the non-social ones, the loners, that's where you tend to find the really crazy looking, uh, primate faces. That's where you see, uh, you know, a whole lot of colors and, and, uh, and, 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 and just crazy stuff going on, you know? Like really the eye-catching primates. But the social primates, those are the ones that are going to have the plainer faces, the places, the faces that uh, there's less remarkable coloration going on. And that's because the face, as with humans, is essentially um, a communications array. You know, it's for the use of expressions and micro expressions uh, to communicate uh, what you're feeling and what you're about to do to those around you. And so the argument here is that the blush is pretty much the same now. If it is, then what is a blush saying? Well, according to clinical psychologist and author Robert J. Edelman, who's done a lot of work uh, with blushing and shame, he uh, says that it's, you're essentially saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm at fault. I understand the gravity of what has happened. I empathize. Uh, in short, it's signaling that the blushers, uh, it, in short, it signals the blushers' adherence to societal norms and acknowledges failure, communicates appeasement and uh, a nonverbal apology, um, which which I think matches up with a lot of a, a lot of our experiences of shame, you know. Yeah, and I'm just curious to know what sort of circumstances cause you to blush. Um, well, I was thinking about this earlier when you're talking about like positive comments making one uh-huh. blush. Like I, I, I do feel like I experience that if someone says something nice about me in the presence of others, I get that kind of uncomfortable blush, even though I'm receiving positive uh, feedback. It's kind of an embarrassment thing. I mean, I it's not shame, right? You're no, not like, it's, oh, it's not a shame, yeah. but it must be that attention thing, you know? Yeah. It's, um, and, uh, yeah, and, and in terms of, like, straight-up shameful blushing, I, I guess I do blush if I, like, say, if I, you know, forget to, you know, do something, you know, around the house, uh, and it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, like I said, I forgot to clean the cat box or something, you know? Like, I might blush when I admit that because it's like, ah, oh, uh, not only did I not clean out the cat box, I'm the type of person who forgets that the cat box has poop in it, uh, you know, which <laughs> so is you kind have a little of, bit of guilt and shame with that. Yeah, because yeah. I'm, I'm a pretty, you know, because yeah. I guess it kind of ties into, you know, how I view myself and how I want other people to view me. So I view myself as the type of person who wouldn't let the cat poop build up. You're and a cat box cleaner. Exactly. So if I if I deviate from that, like that's like a fault in me. So, yeah, I've thought about it before. And it for me, oddly, it's when. Someone makes some sort of sexual innuendo. Hmm. I'm not necessarily embarrassed about. In fact, I'm usually the first person to to do that uh-huh. to make some sort of you know sexual innuendo joke. Mm-hmm. But if someone else says it, then for whatever reason, 
I, I, I think I encountered that as well. Yeah, yeah, where you're just you're. It's almost like you're you're embarrassed for other people, or you're. Well, I mean, even if it's like you're privy to the joke, so you were in the culture of the joke. You're you're among your fellow primates, and this is the subject matter on the table. You know. So. Yeah, we actually got a great email about this. It's called secondhand embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that ties in yeah. yeah directly to what we're talking about here. But embarrassment is again its own category. It doesn't have these long ranging effects that shame does. Before we get into the the deterrent side of shame or its potential use as a deterrent, I do want to point out a couple of quick stats here. One, um, in 19, a 1995 study found that 95% of those polled said they never blushed alone, which is interesting. And it kind of backs up the idea that it's about communicating. And being observed. Yeah. yeah. But then you already mentioned, like, uh, blushing um, while writing, you know, engaged in a solitary act. So, oh, yeah, we were talking about this yeah. earlier, that sometimes from the effort of writing, especially if I'm writing some piece of mm-hmm. fiction, that I, that I come out flush-cheeked and blushing. Yeah, and uh, oh, and I also want to point out that uh, there was a 2009 study that found that people who blush due to some violation are seen less negatively if they blush. So uh, the idea being that it, that again we're potentially communicating authentic shame over something, and then if when and then when we receive that signal from another of our fellow primates, we say, oh, well, they're really sorry, they really feel bad about it. So I'm going to be less hard on them because there's the blush. Well, and that's an aspect of vulnerability, too. Right. right. All right. So if you want to learn more about blushing, do check out Josh Clark's article, Why Do People Blush? It's really excellent. Um, now, when we talk about shame versus guilt as a deterrent, um, we've got some interesting findings here, especially if you start to think about your mom. <laughs> what her her modus operandi was growing up. Did she shame you or did she guilt you? Because... Because one is is far more effective than the other. Um, and this sort of power of shaming, by the way, goes back way, way far, right? Oh, yeah. Because um, there, there is a power to it. It dates back at least to the stockades of colonial times here in the United States. But the question then becomes, does public shaming work as a deterrent to crimes or even unwanted behaviors? And George Mason psychologist June Tagney, she wanted to answer those questions she suspected that shame would be less effective than guilt in deterring future, future crime. So think of the example of guilt equals I did something bad, right? Mm-hmm. And shame equals I am bad, okay? Now, what she did is she recruited more than 400 inmates at a local jail, all recently incarcerated on felony charges. She administered a standard assessment to identify which inmates were prone to guilt feelings or shame feelings, and it also identified those who most who were most likely to blame others for their problems, because that's key here, too. Then the inmates served their time and they were released. About a year after the release, Tagney and her colleagues followed up to see how they were doing. And they used several different measurements, including self-reports and public reports, to come up with a recidivism score for each inmate. And by recidivism, what we mean here is a relapse into criminal behavior that might land them in jail again. Yeah, so her prediction was that shame-prone inmates would be more likely to return to crime after they were released. And her initial findings seemed to support this. Shame seemed to cause former inmates to blame others for their misfortune, leading to, re- to, to repeat crimes. But those who felt guilty were less likely to repeat their crimes a year out. So, again, placed directly into, uh, do, you, do you feel like you were actually guilty, or is it something deeper, right? But, uh, but then... 
further study revealed that this is a little more complicated than that. Uh, found that shame led to recidivism only when the humiliated inmates blamed others. But when shamed individuals accepted the blame themselves, they didn't suffer an increase in recidivism. So in some cases, we can see shame might hold you back. Other times, it could give you a certain amount of strength. It could be a, spr- a springboard to, ch- to make some changes. Um, one of the key ways here uh, that uh, that Tagnick points out is that shame can make you withdraw from others. And it kind of depends on who you're withdrawing from, whether that's a good move or a bad. So if you, it means you're withdrawing from enablers, from other criminals, from addicts, well, then that might be a step in the right direction. That kind of withdraw, withdrawing from people would give, be like a springboard for change. On the other hand, if you're withdrawing from positive influences, if you're withdrawing from family, mm-hmm. you know, people that you feel ashamed in the presence of, or you're withdrawing from other important uh, structures in your life, say, say church is important, and you end up withdrawing from church because you're ashamed of what you did. If you're withdrawing from you know other other resources that could help you out, then that's that's bad news. You just go into that that shame spiral away from the, uh, the, 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 the ladder that could pull you up. That's right. And particularly if you're withdrawing because you blame that person or that mm-hmm. institution or that thing. And we see parallels uh, with this study and alcoholism. Uh, Dr. Tony Webb, who holds a Ph.D. in transdisciplinary research at the University of West Sydney, has has looked into this. And he says that internally generated shame turns into shaming, something done to us that violates our sense of the fair go and not unnaturally. We tend to react against this by attacking others, uh, blaming, as as we discussed, hiding, as we also discussed, and hiding from ourselves, he Mm -hmm. says. And so this plays into a kind of social and uh, ecological apathy, as he says, and a wide range of addictive behaviors have a common root in what he says is unacknowledged shame. So let's look at a study here that looks uh, a bit more into it. It's from 2013. It's from the Clinical Psychological Science by Jessica Tracy and Daniel Randalls of the University of British Columbia. And they looked at drinking and health outcomes in a sample of newly sober recovering alcoholics. They used measures that assessed both self-reported shame and shame-related behaviors. And these, this becomes really important, by the way, the self-reported versus the behavior. So the behavior might be a narrowed chest and slumping shoulders. And the researchers took that information and they hypothesized that participants would be less able to voluntarily control their behavioral displays of shame. And that would be their tell. Mm-hmm. So in the first session, participants were asked to describe the last time that they drank and they felt badly about it. And the responses were videotaped by the researchers. In a second session, about four months later, participants were asked to report their drinking behaviors. And they completed questionnaires about their physical and mental health at both of these sessions. Now, here are the findings. People who displayed more shame-related behavior were likely to be in, uh, were more likely to be in poor physical health at the time of their first session. Um, But more surprising, though, was the finding that behavioral displays of shame predicted whether participants would relapse after the first session. Not the Mm self-reported, but the way they were behaving with their their body postures. Okay. And Tracy Randall says, how much shame participants displayed strongly predicted not only whether they relapsed, but how bad that relapse was. That is, how many drinks they had 
if they did relapse. So they could take that information. They could take this this outward expression of shame through the body and predict whether or not that person would would fall into, say, that recidivism, so to speak, of alcoholism, that relapse. It's interesting. This, uh, this reminds uh, me a little bit of the implicit association test that we discussed in our last episode, you know, about weeding out uh, our, our self-reported um, ideas about self and others versus uh, what we're we're feeling and uh, and what and what we're thinking below uh, cognition. Right. I mean, this requires you mm-hmm. to identify your feelings as either shame or guilt in order to, to begin to understand how to change the behavior, right? Because if you're unaware of it, you have an implicit bias, right? That's working under the cover about how how the shame is manifesting in yourself. Um, and so that's that would be one of the things that, that you would have to confront if you wanted to change yourself. Because if you think, I am this, I am a bad person, as opposed to I have... Exhibited some bad behaviors. Well, that's the the, the difference between change and, and just staying mired in that mindset. Indeed, and this this all stacks up really well with um, uh, what I was reading from um, University of Alberta researcher Jessica Van Villet, uh, 2009 study where she, she looked at positive shame and problematic shame, which you know, we've been discussing here. On, on the positive level, shame can be that springboard. It can it can force us to make changes that. That, that help us, that protect our relationships and, and preserve that fabric of society. Again, getting into that idea that, that we feel shame and because we've fallen out of step with societal norms. Uh, but then there's the problematic shame where, you know, the shame spiral, withdrawing from others, withdrawing from the very things you need to pull yourself out of the pit, right? And, uh, her research shows that people who feel Debilitated by shame, uh, tend to again internalize and overpersonalize the sense of the, the the situation, and uh, and they they seem to feel like they they cannot change things, they cannot uh, pull things around. Uh, so she has a few suggestions uh, here that I think are, are very valid and, and really stack up well with what we've been discussing here. She says step back from the problem and view the picture in a different light. She says, possibly identify external factors that contribute uh, to your actions or situation. Break the hopelessness and realize that there are steps you can take to make things right again and make connections to people, uh, individuals, to humanity itself, or even, even in some cases, depending on your particular worldview, uh, to a higher power or a more you know, noble idea. You know, and I think this is um, particularly important in the this, this sort of environment that we are in historically with the internet culture, mm-hmm. there is a lot of shaming, right? Yes. And so we're absorbing that on subconscious levels. And so I think that you even have to uh, cultivate an awareness in that aspect too. It's not just your own behaviors or how you operate in the world, but the kind of stuff that you are exposing yourself to or even participating in virtually online. And I'm talking about dog shaming here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're talking about the um, someone's dog has done something uh, bad, like knock over a plant, and then they uh, they essentially show them ashamed with a sign that says, "I knocked over my master's potted plant." Yes, there are a lot of dog shaming sites, <laughs> including dogshaming.com. And just as you said, it could be like a, a dog looking sort of, you know, like it's been reproached and it's got those baleful eyes and it might say, I tried to make a sandwich, but I don't know how. And then it's got a bunch of you know, pieces <laughs> of bread stacked up on its head. Because uh-huh. they, they, as we've discussed in uh, in some of our past episodes about dog and human relationships, they, they take on that submissive pose, mm-hmm. uh, which 
we often uh, project shame and apology and, oh, I feel sad over what he did, when in reality it's it's submission. It is, and um, if if you want to know more about that, that episode is really interesting. Um, I think it's called Your Dog Doesn't Love You. Yes. <laughs> but it talks about the, the co-evolution of humans and dogs and how do- dogs' eye tracking mm-hmm. uh, evolved with humans because it was so important for them to try to clue into what we wanted from them and what we were thinking so that they could get the scraps of food from us. Yeah. Of course, it's interesting to think back on that and then look at this episode where we dismantle uh, a human uh, display of emotion. And uh, in, in when you when you start really taking it apart, like, is it that different from the, the from this display of obedience uh, and submission on the part of the dog that we classify as uh, as being, oh, I'm sorry. And then we're talking about blood vessels welling up in the face. And it's basically saying, oh, I stepped out of line. It's, it's in a way it's kind of its own uh, uh, signal of submission. The difference here, though, is the dog is not saying, I am a bad dog. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, the, the dog's like, all right, what do I need to do to get to that treat? Yeah. What, what sort of, oh, you want the baleful eyes? Okay, here you go. There you go. Yeah. The human, human complexity um, changes everything. All right. Well, hey, you want to check out uh, dog shaming? You want to check out uh, uh, that episode on uh, whether your dog loves you? Uh, you can uh, find all of that uh, on the landing page for this episode, and that is at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our videos, podcast episodes, blog posts, you name it. And if you have feedback on this, on guilt, shame, embarrassment, um, you can send us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 